A very good evening. It's absolutely lovely to be able to welcome you all here today. A particularly warm welcome to those who are visiting us from other churches or, or from our SMAC congregation. I hope you feel warmly welcome amongst us. What would be really great is if I could get you to open your Bibles again to the Old Testament reading from Ecclesiastes. That was page 663, page 663, Ecclesiastes, chapters 3 and 4, page 663. The other thing that I can commend to you is in the very center of your bulletin there is an outline. If you like cartoons, then that's good. There is a cartoon here, but mostly there's a structure and there's some notes, which I hope will be helpful. So outlining the bulletin, but most of all, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 on page 663. Let's start with prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Here in Ecclesiastes, the preacher has been considering the meaning of life under the sun, that is, life apart from the covenant mercies of God. Today we will hear him consider five topics. We will hear him chase where wisdom under the sun brings us in those things. And with each, we will reflect on how the gospel changes everything. The first of those is the question of whether we are able to achieve anything under the sun. Modern civilization is built upon the assumption that modern means civilization, that things are moving forward, that the future is better than the past, and more specifically that we are making a better future together, that we are on the right side of history, we are creating the future we want to see. Things are getting better all the time. But yet you don't have to live very long or read very much history to realize that that is the biggest lie of all, isn't it? Nothing actually changes. As the French rightly say, the more things change, the more they are the same. Or as Ecclesiastes puts it, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Deep down, we, we all know this. Back in the 50s, Pete Seeger set the beginning of our passage to a song, and it quickly became a number one hit. It was called Turn, Turn, Turn. You might have heard it. But it became a number one hit, not because of its religious content, but simply because it strikes a chord with what we all know about this world. That this is a futile world where nothing stays forever. Not the joy of childbirth, nor the sorrow of death, not the toil of planting, nor the time of harvest. If there is war, there will also be peace and then war again. If there is laughter, there will be mourning, and the things we build today for the future, we find ourselves casting away tomorrow. Which begs the question, what then are we achieving by all the work that we are doing? Or as Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 9 puts it, what gain has the worker for all his toil? And under the sun, the answer actually 
is that we will not achieve anything lasting at all. Sure, there, there may be good times. In fact, God has made it so that everything will be beautiful in its time. That was verse 11, but it will only be beautiful in its time. And there will be bad times as well. Sometimes we love to read this verse at funerals. But what are we doing there? We're looking at, the, at a dead body, remembering that, yes, there was a time when God made this person beautiful, when they were happy and loving and full of life, but that time is gone. We find it hard to accept, I know, don't we? Because, because God, he says, has put eternity into our hearts, but in such a way that we don't know the beginning from the end. And so we end up in this life, as it were, floating like driftwood, one way, then the other, as time gives way to time. And perhaps it is, as Solomon suggests here to us, that, that actually the best thing, verse 13, is, is to try to find joy in doing good and toiling before we die. After all, it's probably better to have some joy before we die than not to, I guess. And in the end, once we realize that actually we cannot change anything that God has done, we cannot add to it, we cannot take from it, actually all that is left is to humbly accept the times he gives and fear before him. Even if we think finally we have achieved something, we, we are assured here that that too will be undone in the time yet to come. For as verse 15 says, that which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Some people take this the wrong way. Some people realize this and they say, well, actually then, I may as well use wickedness and evil to get as much joy as I can out of this futile life. But there's also a flip side to what we've heard. And so even though we find in the place of justice, wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, wickedness, we also know that because there is a time for every matter under heaven, verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Wickedness also is not the answer, is it? It's a very gloomy view of the world, actually, isn't it? Does the gospel change the way we see this world? Absolutely. Because of the gospel, we actually know that the end of our lives is not just this judgment for sins, but a new kingdom and life in Christ. We know because of the gospel that actually Christ has died for our sins so that we can be forgiven in the judgment and have life with him forever. We know in the gospel, therefore, that we can live now in this world for the sake of the world to come. Jesus puts it like this in Matthew in chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For us with the gospel, no matter what the time or the season, we know we can keep on fearing God, loving him rightly, loving our neighbors as ourselves, knowing that that will be our treasure and our joy forever. 
Solomon's right, isn't he? Under the sun, there is nothing to gain for our toil. Yet with the wisdom of the gospel, there is gain in the world to come. Brings us to the second topic, and this is the shocking observation that we are no different to animals. Here, I think Solomon's stress is that we are like animals, like beasts that perish. We are not like God. This thinking that we are gods, is, it's the fundamental root of sin. You know, every time we sin, in a way we are saying to God, well, I am God. I decide what is right and what is wrong. I decide what I should do and not you. But this thinking that we are gods is also the reason we find it so hard to accept that the future is in his hands. We cling to the belief that we have the power to control the future, to create the future we want together. We, we believe that the times and the seasons are in our hands. And so God teaches us the hard lesson, verse 18, that we are not gods, but in fact we are no better than the beasts. As he says, what happens to the children of men and what happens to the beasts is the same in fact, we don't even know what happens to the spirit. We, we cannot see what happens to our spirit when we die, whether it goes up or down or, or anywhere, because we are not gods. And so the right conclusion from this is to stop trying to be gods and instead to try to find joy in our toil, just like the beasts that perish. But the gospel changes this too. For in the light of the gospel, Yes, we find that we are still not gods, definitely not. But we are also not just the same as the beasts that perish. Through the light of the gospel, we realize that we are being restored into the image of God. That having died with Christ, we have a new self now, which, as Colossians says, is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. The gospel says that we are not like animals, for we are being made like Christ now to be his forever. The gospel says we know where the spirit of the Christian goes. It goes to be with the Lord, and that is better by far. The third topic is a sobering one, and it is a lesson he draws under the sun that we would be better off dead or never even born. He has already suggested a few times that perhaps the best thing for us is to find joy in our toil, but here, I'm afraid, he turns that on its head too. For he sees, chapter 4 and verse 1, all the oppressions done under the sun. Life in a futile world is bad enough, but life in a futile world when, world when we face oppression and wickedness and suffering from each other, it seems worse than awful. It seems to Solomon that actually it's better off if you are dead already, for at least then you will not be seeing this wickedness anymore under the sun. And sometimes people feel like that today too, don't they? We feel that life is, is painful and wicked. And the shorter it is, the better, to be honest. At least we feel that at least we should be spared suffering any longer. 
is part of the reason why in some countries we see the rise of something called euthanasia. Euthanasia is the practice of killing the disabled or the elderly or the frail and sick, believing that it is better to end their lives now than to allow them to carry on suffering in this world. But actually, this argument goes further than that, for if we continue to follow Solomon, we realize that actually, if life under the sun is all there is, it would be better never even to be born to start with. Verse, chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, For better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. If you read the international press, you would have read a lot in recent days about abortion but particularly from Alabama. Sometimes what is behind this is, is this exact thinking. It is that people have started to believe that life under the sun has no value. People have started to believe that actually a hard life of suffering almost has a negative value. It, it's better that it just doesn't happen at all. And so they convince themselves that taking the life of the child before birth is a good thing a way of sparing them the wickedness of this world. And if we are thinking just under the sun, actually we can understand that thinking, can't we? We shouldn't be surprised at it. In fact, the Romans in Jesus' own time did exactly the same thing as they exposed their newborns to die. Nothing ever changes, does it? But I have to say, that the gospel transforms this point perhaps more than any other. For with the gospel, we have very wonderful things to say here. Yet there are things that must be said with compassion and love. In an objective sense, we know clearly that murder is wrong. We know that every life is a precious gift from God, made in his image, filled with his breath, created in his love, and we know that on that day, that time of judgment we've mentioned, he will require a reckoning for every victim. Morally, that's clear, but I want to challenge us today, in the light of our passage, to think about a deeper answer, an answer that talks to that meaningless that is behind this thinking, an answer that starts off with realizing that suffering in this world does not contradict God's goodness or meaning in life. In fact, he even works through suffering, just like he worked through the oppression and suffering and death of his own son on the cross. There is a time for every matter under heaven, and that includes suffering and wickedness. Yet in all of these, we can be assured by his promise that he works in all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We may not see it or understand it now, but we can be certain that the fruit of these things is eternal glory. For as St. Paul writes to us in 2 Corinthians, he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. In that light, you see, we, we can never say that, that suffering means that life is not worth living, not in the light of a, of a loving God who promises eternity to his children. Instead, we can help each other to set our hearts and our hopes on things eternal, particularly on that day when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and where there will be no more oppression or suffering or death anymore. But there is one more thing that as Christians we really must say as well on, on this difficult topic. And we should say it particularly to those who have already sinned, perhaps in these ways. Those who are often left with deep guilt and crushing secret pain. To those we must give the full comfort of the cross. The promise that the death of Christ for our sins means exactly what it says. That Christ died for our sins so we can be forgiven even for those sins. That we can come to him in repentance and faith and be forgiven our sins and cleansed from all unrighteousness. It is his promise. which brings us to topic four, which is that working harder just makes things worse. Here, Solomon turns, chapter four and verse four, to look at all toil and skill in work, and he says, it is all vanity. Why? Because it is all driven by man's envy of his neighbor. And if we look at the world, is this not what we see? This is what drives most of the world we see today. We see what someone else has, we want to have the same, and so we spend our few days of life struggling and toiling to get it, and then we both die, and it was all vanity. Put like that, it looks like vanity, doesn't it? But how common it is that we live our lives in envy of our neighbor. We work overtime, we take out loans to buy things which didn't even exist a hundred years ago as if this is what life is for. We end up working so hard, we find no, le no rest in this life. We may well end up like the many who die just months after retiring from a busy career. Better, Solomon suggests under the sun to work less and live quietly than his first success to have two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Better, he suggests, to be perhaps a bit unambitious rather than toil ourselves away into an early grave. Working hard is just making things worse, actually. It's not the answer. However, the gospel has something to say about this, too. The gospel tells us that yet there is one kind of toil that is not vanity and a chasing after the wind. The fact that our Lord Jesus Christ rose again means that we have been given work that is not in vain. It's what we heard in our epistle that Chantel read to us. The work of the Lord is not in vain. What is this work? He explains in the next chapter, it's, it's what he and Timothy are doing. That is the work 
of the gospel, that is bringing people to know Christ, that is teaching them in Christ, that is building them up in Christ. He says, the labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is a kind of labor that will not make us the envy of our neighbors. But why should we live for our neighbors anyway? But it is the kind of work that will please our Savior. And let me tell you, one day, I firmly believe that we will see it. One day, we will be there, gathered around the throne of the Lamb, with all God's redeemed people singing his praises, and we will look and we will see there, there, there's that sister that I invited to church. There's, there's that brother that I prayed with in, in that hard time. There's, there's the person that I encouraged to find out about Jesus. There, there, there they are. There, there are my children who I brought up to know and trust the Lord. And, and, and I will look on that day and we will see and we will, we will see, yes, our labor in the Lord is never in vain. Which brings us finally to the last topic. And I think this is the idea of whether working together is the other solution to finding meaning under the sun. I'll look at it briefly, but I think the logic is this. The idea that by working together, we can achieve something, and it works in the small picture. One person on their own has no one to toil for and no one to help them if they fall. Two is better than one. And in fact, three is better than two. For verse 12, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so perhaps we join the dots and we say the answer is a huge number of people to help. Is this the answer? Who has the most people to help them? It's the king, isn't it? The king has a whole kingdom of people under him. Surely if everyone else fails, yet the king will stand. But as Solomon rightly says... Better to be a poor and a wise youth than an old king who no longer knows how to take advice. Why so? Surely not. Well, that old king one day will die and be replaced by a younger king. And although great multitudes once followed that king, they will rejoice in him no longer. At least the poor youth keeps his wisdom. All helpers fail. In the end, every single one, there is no one in this world that we can trust forever. And so this too is a vanity and a chasing after wind. But there is some wisdom here, isn't there? We can see that having a helper, it, it, it's the right direction. But if only we could have a helper who we can truly trust, who will stay with us forever. And in the gospel, that is exactly what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. In our Lord Jesus Christ, we have that helper that you can see Solomon, he's striving to find, but he cannot quite define. We have the helper who will never fail us in life or in death. The one who has the power to keep and help us forever. You remember that first Easter Sunday, how he, how he received from the Father all authority in heaven and on earth. You remember how he sent out his disciples to make disciples, promising that he would be with us always to the end of the age. That is the promise, my dear brothers and sisters. He will be with us. And therefore we know that neither life nor death nor angels nor archangels nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or death 
nor anything else in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We cannot trust in man, but we can trust in Jesus, knowing that he who loved us, who gave his life for us, will never fail us, but will bring us safely to his eternal kingdom forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great gift of wisdom that you gave to Solomon. We thank you the way, for the way in which these words, even today, help us to turn our hearts from the love of this world and all its attractions to hope and trust in you alone through your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that Son. We thank you for his death for our sins, through which we can be forgiven and assured of life even beyond judgment, eternity with you and all your people. So in response we pray that you would help us always to fear you, laying up treasures in heaven rather than in this world. We pray you would help us more and more to become like Jesus and submit to his word. We pray that you would comfort us and help us to persevere in all afflictions and not to give up on this life. Pray you would help us to set our hearts on the glory of things eternal, not the things that perish. We pray that you would stir us up to always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that it is never in vain. Most of all, we pray that you would keep us trusting in Jesus Christ alone and no other longing for the time that will come, the time when he will bring us into the life of the world to come. Father, we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.